this is actually a very common everyday phenomenon and we all have false memories every day and studying them tells us a lot about how memory works and that having these is often actually a result of adaptive processes that go on in our brains um, and false memories can be for example benign details like thinking you put your keys in your bag while you actually left them on the kitchen counter but in the worst case then they can have also disastrous consequences so for example when they enter the legal realm where the stakes are very high and where we need accurate memories uh, to have accurate testimonies welcome to the history of drugs in society i'm your host eugene leventhal this week's interview is with lillian kloft who is a phd candidate at maastricht university in the netherlands working in neuropsychology and psychopharmacology as you'll hear in this interview, she does a lot of work on the question of how different intoxicating substances affect our memory. We talked about how cannabis, alcohol, and MDMA all affect our memory in different ways. A bit of housekeeping, you may have noticed these episodes aren't coming out consistently or as frequently. Unfortunately, that's going to be the case for the immediate future, but I'll release a separate update with more information on that. With that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the invite. Uh, my name is Lillian. I'm a PhD candidate, so I'm a researcher, and I work in the Netherlands in Maastricht, cute little town at the south uh, southern end of the country. And um, I'm in my final year. Uh, my background is in forensic psychology, so I studied my master's in forensic psychology, and now my research focuses on com combining the two fields of forensic psychology with psychopharmacology. So I'm interested in basically all psychoactive substances, be it legal or illegal, and how they affect our memory. So specifically, I focus on um, if having used a substance may distort our memory, so not just make us forget, but also make us remember something that we didn't actually experience. So yeah, this is known as a false memory. So I want to know if having used a substance can make us more likely to have a false memory, and particularly in the context of a crime, because in many cases, uh, for example, eyewitnesses or suspects are intoxicated. And so, uh, yeah, I do research with substances like alcohol, cannabis and ecstasy, both in the lab where we administer these substances to healthy people and test their memory, but also in the field. So, for example, in uh, at music festivals or coffee shops, which are uh, cannabis cafes in the Netherlands. And on the topic of false memory and cannabis, as you mentioned, that's one of your areas of focus. I know you co-authored a study recently called False Memory Formation in Cannabis Users, a Field Study. To start with a basic definition, what is a false memory? Yeah, false memory can be defined as the retrieval of an event or a detail uh, that was never actually experienced. So this is actually a very common everyday phenomenon, and we all have false memories every day. And studying them tells us a lot about how memory works and that having these is often actually a result of adaptive processes that go on in our brains. Um, and false memories can be, for example, benign details, like thinking you put your keys in your bag uh, while you actually left them on the kitchen counter. But in the worst case, then they can have also disastrous consequences. So for example, when they enter the legal realm where the stakes are very high and where we need accurate memories uh, to have accurate testimonies. And yeah, for example, past cases of wrongful conviction have shown that um, memory errors and false memories by eyewitnesses, for example, a false identification of someone or uh, even giving a false confession um, related to false memory can lead to the conviction of innocent people. 
And sometimes only decades later, they become exonerated through, for example, DNA analysis. And is there any particular reason that you looked at cannabis in terms of false memories? So uh, cannabis is um, right after legal drugs like alcohol and nicotine, the most, by far the most widely used substance out there. And it is so on a global scale. Um, and recent developments in terms of its legalization status across a number of different countries, so changes uh, with regard to its medical use, but also recreational use and legalization are just paving the way to further normalize the use of cannabis, especially in Western societies. And the fact that it is so common gives us the assumption that also a high number of eyewitnesses and suspects involved in a crime might be under the influence of cannabis, for example, when they see a crime, when being questioned about it, or both. And so it's been well established through research now for a long time that cannabis at least acutely messes with our cognition and our memory. And there has been a study by a Spanish researcher called Jordi Riba a few years ago that gave me or me and my supervisors this idea to, to do more research on false memories and cannabis. And they found that um, people who were heavy users uh, of cannabis for a long time were more susceptible to false memories, um, even four weeks after they were, um, they were abstinent from cannabis. So it just seemed like an important topic to study uh, in the context of false memory. And yeah. When I know, well, first off, I know there's one difference, you know, I'm recording out of the US, you're recording out of the Netherlands and cannabis is legal in, in the Netherlands. Is that correct? That's a difficult question. It's actually, uh, you can't say that it's legal because it's really a gray area. Uh, mm -hmm. So the selling it in coffee shops is legal, but the whole, um, delivery process or the, the the logistical chain what happens before it getting to a coffee shop that is a different topic okay but at least the sale within coffee shops we can say is something that is mm -hmm. legally permitted just looking at the the pure question of how do you set up a study like this to examine whether or not a substance such as cannabis can affect or create any kind of false memories how do you go about setting that up mm -hmm. So in our case, the first thing you go through is um, a medical ethics review. So a very elaborate um, application that you fill out and um, we have all these protocols we need to follow. So that already takes um, a little bit of back and forth with an ethics committee. And you also need a medical supervisor who is on board. Um, and the medical supervisor basically approves every participant prior to their enrollment into the study. So people are screened um, first by a researcher and then they are screened by the supervisor. And we also do physical examinations, tests like uh, yeah, screening for all kinds of um, medicinal history and, and issues. And then, so after the medical exam and after it's, it's clear that the participant is healthy, we do a training. Um, we show them, for example, uh, yeah, tests that we're going to use and the vaporizer that we're going to use. And then um, in the case of my most recent study, we had two test days on each um, of which they get, uh, on one of which they get cannabis and on the other one, they received placebo. So it was double blind. So the participant didn't know when they would get placebo and when they get, would get cannabis and neither did the, the testing researcher. And then these were, these test days were two weeks, uh, were one week apart. And each test day also had a follow-up one week later. So in total, there were three testing occasions. 
And just making sure where you're saying it was the testing, there was a potential placebo. Does that mean it was either tobacco or something else in the vaporizer or how did that look? Yes, the placebo was a mixture of herbs. It was a, kind of a nicotine replacement that is already out on the market, but it doesn't have psychoactive effects. And I, I know this wasn't the first study that you've been involved in, in terms of the effects of cannabis on false formation. As you just mentioned a moment ago in this study, you added the follow-up a week later. What was the logic in kind of looking at the, at sort of some prolapse time there? So we added a follow-up a week later because um, we know there can be residual effects when people are intoxicated. And we wanted to test, um, we, we had this immediate testing condition where people were still acutely intoxicated. But then um, after a week later, we had this, this follow-up um, because yeah, then people were sober again. Uh, one reason being the residual effects, but also realistically because a person might not be questioned uh, immediately after seeing a crime, but rather maybe a week later. In terms of the follow-up, did the participants have to commit to not using either cannabis or any intoxicants in between, or was that sort of left up to their own devices? Yes, we had um, certain requirements, and one of the most important ones was that participants weren't allowed to use any uh, yeah, psychoactive substances, such as cannabis, at least a week before each testing day. And I also read in the paper that you, if I'm not mistaken, you used some technology to help with this study as well. Can you mention kind of what, uh, why you used VR and what it was used for? Yeah, so traditionally um, studies um, involving false memory or investigating false memory um, or simulating yeah, crime situations have used, for example, picture slides or videos. So where people, um, for example, watch a theft on a video and in some rare cases, people have also used a staged event so that yeah, a crime was acted out and then people's memories was test, uh, were tested afterwards. Uh, but virtual reality is a nice trade-off because it gives you high degrees of experimental control or what we call internal validity, while at the same time creating an experience that is fully immersive to the participant. And so they do feel really involved, even though it might look like a computer game. So it has high external or ecological validity, um, higher than, for example, watching a video of a crime. As a, as a slight tangent, I know I've read in the UPenn, I think, School of Medicine, one of the professors there started using VR for naloxone training administration when it was hard to get folks into actual courses. Uh, so it's just going to be interesting to see how something like VR can be used in all kinds of very creative ways in the research and uh, and study of a better understanding of certain substances. But to get back to your your study, what were some of, for you and your colleagues, what were some of the, what was pretty much the hypothesis going into this study? Uh, so really broadly, we just expected that, uh, yeah, cannabis intoxication would make somebody more prone to, yeah, to false memories. So that would elevate, yeah, memory errors. And were those findings supported? And did you find anything that was sort of surprising by the end of the study? Um, yeah, so I would probably have to go into a bit more detail about the study. Uh, we used um, two very established tests to, tests to um, yeah, induce and study false memories. One of them being a more fundamental or basic wordless paradigm, and the other one uh, being the VR um, in a paradigm that is called the misinformation method. 
the more basic wordless paradigm. Um, in this one, people study um, very strongly associatively related words or word lists, and then later they get tested on them. And um, we ask if they recognize certain words, but we also mix them with non-presented words that are more or less related to the studied lists. And in this test, we found um, that the intoxicated group or the intoxicated people more often um, falsely recognized new words. So they had more false memories. And especially for those ones that were completely unrelated to what they studied. So in that sense, I think the findings were quite surprising or for me also shocking because it shows that intoxicated people or yeah, intox cannabis intoxicated people have kind of a bias to, to really say yes, especially to random new information. And that makes them kind of unreliable when you want to question them. And this was also reflected in the misinformation study. So in this, um, oh, in this paradigm, in this paradigm, we showed participants the VR scenario. There was one eyewitness and one perpetrator scenario so that they witnessed the crime in the one uh, scenario and in the other, they actually stole something. And then we, uh, we gave them misinformation. So in the eyewitness scenario, this was a girl traveling with them in the VR. So it was a simulated eyewitness. And she was uh, giving her account of, of what she saw in the crime. And she was mixing like all these false details into her account. And then we later on questioned the participant, asking them all these leading questions, but also asking them random control questions uh, that had nothing to do with the scenario, basically, or really random details. So we were asking them, for example, it was a black purse, right? when it was actually a brown purse, but also these random questions like, did you see a cat in the bar? And we see in the, uh, in the results that the cannabis intoxicated people were more likely to go along with these suggestive leading questions, but also to say yes to these random questions. And these effects were most like the most strongly, the most pronounced when people were intoxicated. So under the acute influence of cannabis. And then a week later, most of these effects weren't there anymore. So only very subtle memory effects remained. And were there any sort of unusual elements about uh, changes in the placebo, placebo group week over week? Or is that, uh, or if I remember correctly in the paper, there was some mild decrease in terms of uh, their retention of detail, but that might just be more attributable to, to general memory loss over time. Is that right? Yeah. So as I mentioned, only some subtle effects remained one week later, uh, and those were only in the wordless task. So the wordless tasks overall seems more sensitive to drug effects. Um, but yeah, some of this had to do with the placebo group's memory actually deteriorating over time so that in the misinformation paradigm, um, they all, yeah, both groups had similar rates of false memory, but it wasn't that the cannabis group got better over time, but rather the placebo group um, going down to the level of the cannabis group. And so what do you see as some of the potential takeaways from a study like this for those working in legal or direct forensic settings? I think the most important implication from this study is that you should probably avoid questioning people, um, be it in a legal context or um, maybe in a more clinical health context. Um, avoid questioning people while intoxicated. 
especially if you want, yeah, if it's really important that the information is reliable and rather that um, it is better probably to wait um, until they are sober again, but also don't wait too long because, yeah, we know from decades of research that memory deteriorates with time. Is our understanding of memory and these substances nuanced enough to have kind of that more complicated landscape of you know, for someone who is using cannabis, you should question them between two and four days after the case versus for alcohol, maybe between right away and, you know, right after they so, or, you know, I'm making up the numbers, but is our understanding of memory in those contexts anywhere close to that where there are even ballpark numbers now, or is it much more, yeah, just people question them and they, ha- and, and they're not taking systematic approaches towards that just yet? I would say it, that the current knowledge is not nuanced enough to really provide these guidelines, um, or at least, I mean, they haven't been formulated. So, um, and this has been the first study that has really investigated um, cannabis effects on false memory in such a comprehensive way. Um, and in terms of police regulations, as far as I know, um, there is not usually a standardized approach or it differs really between jurisdictions that um, some protocols say you should question somebody right away, whereas others say you should uh, wait until they're sober. Um, that's that's yeah, what I know from, from the police or policy side of things. And um, but this, yeah, this is really it. And this is why I think it's important that we create more knowledge to really um, yeah, inform policies based on sound research. And segueing to a previous study that you, you've done on cannabis, were there any kind of different findings between the two studies or, or was it sort of just purely building on top of each other? So um, you're talking probably about the field study um, that I published? Yes, excuse me. That, yeah, that's from the false formation in cannabis users, a field study. Yeah. Yeah. So this was my, my very first um, study in my PhD re- research. So um, they do kind of build onto each other. So the, the field study came first and then the lab study, um, but they also ran in parallel. And um, in the field study, what we did is um, we compared three groups intoxicated cannabis users, sober cannabis users, and non-users. So um, people who uh, were not using cannabis and had a very limited lifetime exposure to cannabis. And uh, yeah, we went into the coffee shops in in the Netherlands. As I mentioned, these are like shops where you can uh, legally buy and consume cannabis. And so um, we did the DRM the wordless task that I mentioned with uh, people in the coffee shops, whereas the control group was recruited and tested in like cafes and libraries. And so it was different in the sense that, um, yeah, we only looked at this um, more basic fundamental measure of false memory. And we, yeah, we didn't do anything more ecologically valid, like the, the misinformation, the R paradigm that I mentioned. But it was still interesting because the results um, the results also showed this um, this yes bias of both intoxicated and sober cannabis users in the sense that they really recognized a lot more of these completely unrelated new words. So again, uh, yeah, it shows this, this yes bias towards new random words. So transitioning more to alcohol then, in terms of our general understanding of how a substance such as alcohol affects memory relative to cannabis, 
are there any major differences that listeners should be aware of? Yeah, so alcohol also has strong effects on cognition, and they have been compared to a sledgehammer when it comes to memory. And the most pronounced effect is that it can leave our short-term memory intact, uh, so that an intoxicated person might still seem coherent and able to hold a conversation. But it has the strongest effect on the transfer of memories from short-term into long-term memory, so that, for example, already a few minutes later or the next day, the person might not be uh, might not remember anymore what we talked about. So alcohol really strongly can cause blackouts. So we distinguish in the literature be between on block blackouts and fragmentary. So on block being um, a long um, period of time that is fully gone, whereas fragmentary is much more common. They're also called grayouts. And there is also um, this interesting theory called alcohol myopia theory um, that states that when uh, somebody is drunk, uh, their attention becomes narrowed. So they only focus on what's most salient um, to them at a given moment. So what captures the, their attention, uh, which is at the expense of attending to other stimuli. So, for example, you might get super hungry and only focus on where is the next McDonald's, but then you forget your jacket at a party or something like that. And in terms of eyewitness memory, the research shows that for most of the research out there, alcohol affects the completeness, the completeness of memory reports. So intoxicated people remember fewer, de uh, fewer correct details about a crime, for example, um, but they're not less accurate in what they do recall than sober people. Um, so you, you already probably can gauge from this response that there is just a lot more um, more research out there with alcohol, which makes, of course, sense because it's easier and ethically to do. Um, however, a drawback is that most lab, lab studies are ethically only allowed to get people to a certain level of intoxication. So alcohols, alcohol levels reached are usually only around the legal driving limit or a little higher. It might not reflect what's realistically being hit in bars. Yeah, so... A solution to this is what a few researchers have now done, uh, yes, turning to field studies. So actually going to bars or festivals and looking for these people that are uh, much, much yeah, more intoxicated than in the lab. And when it comes to studying the effects of alcohol, are there any differences in terms of the, the process of how you set this up? I know you just mentioned one of the nuances in terms of uh, the challenge of how much you could administer in a controlled environment versus needing to do a field study. But aside from that, when it comes to comparing, say, alcohol and cannabis from a study setup perspective, were there any major differences when it comes to alcohol? So the major difference I can think of right now is that in alcohol studies, as opposed to um, cannabis studies, for example, usually, or a lot of them have three conditions. So there's a control condition, and there is an expectancy condition um, where people are kind of, yeah, try to, they try to convince people that they've had alcohol when it's actually a placebo drink and the other way around. So they try to um, convince them that it is non-alcoholic, but there is actually alcohol in it. And the reason for this is that expecting a certain substance can already influence our um, our cognition and our metacognition. So if we think we're receiving a certain substance, this can um, affect our strategies, how to, for example, it can sharpen our attention, it can make us more conservative in what we report and so on. 
when it comes to the question uh, or to the idea of how soon should or sh uh, how soon should someone be questioned during or after intoxication, how does that change when it comes to a substance like alcohol relative to cannabis, which we already spoke about? Yeah, great question. So there are some differences uh, in terms of yeah, what's been found about alcohol and cannabis. And a big difference I have come across from the research out there that is um, for alcohol, when recall follows immediately, so when a person is still intoxicated, there are usually no differences in terms of elevated false memory or suggestibility, at least not at low levels. However, these can occur at higher levels of intoxication and at lower levels also, but after a delay. So a delay makes it more, um, more likely that a person will be inaccurate or have false memories. And um, yeah, high yeah, and high levels as well. With cannabis, we have seen in my study that the worst effects are under immediate intoxication. So we should delay the interview. Um, whereas with alcohol, we have found the opposite. So that if the person is not is kind of coherent and not completely wasted, it is better to interview them right away. So as soon as possible. And to kind of segue over to a, uh, a paper that I believe is currently still under review, but was still very interesting. So I was hoping we could cover it a little bit called Hazy Memories in the Courtroom. I also just love that name. Um, <laughs> but part of the review, to start on this, uh, on this review, to part, uh, part of the review that you did looked across different countries in terms of how some of the rates of legal cases involving alcohol uh, alcohol or other substances varied. Would you mind just kind of at a high level describing what were some of the differences that you did find? Sure, just a comment about the, the title because I also really love this hazy memories bit. And I wanted to use this title also for my cannabis study, um, but then the journal wouldn't let me keep it. And they wanted to keep it more, yeah, very, I guess. Yeah, in line and, and very, very factual. So I'm using it now for my dissertation. Yeah, and in terms of your question about this, in terms of your question about this review paper that I wrote that is still under re review at the moment. So um, I wanted to get a picture of how often it happens that intoxication plays a role in legal cases and is involved in court rulings. So um, any case that uh, where one of the people involved is intoxicated. And I've looked at several Western nations, including the US, England, Australia, and the Netherlands, but also Indonesia. And I identified several resources. So for example, official national statistics, governmental legal databases, but also police research, case file research, toxicology analysis, and victim surveys. And when converging the findings, um, yeah, then kind of the picture emerged that, um, yeah, there is frequent occurrence of intoxication in criminal cases and legal cases or court rulings that involved alcohol or other drug use were found um, to represent about one to four percent. So this was more or less comparable across the countries that I reviewed, um, but Australia was a bit high on the higher end of the scale. And um, this was just um, basically cases on, out of all cases out of all court rulings one to two for uh, one to four percent of the cases involved intoxication 
But um, what was interesting is when you looked at more um, specific subsets of cases, for example, serious or violent types of crime, then the incidence of alcohol and drug use was much, much higher than these one to four percent. And for those more serious cases, were those noted to, to have any major deviation from a frequency perspective across countries or was it roughly in ballpark? Uh, generally speaking, it was in line across the different nations you looked at. That's a good question. I didn't look into, I didn't compare the countries that much in that regard, unfortunately. So you'll have to read my paper to find out. <laughs> and uh, it is, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be published soon enough so that folks can read. I got lucky that I got a preview. But um, to, to shift to a somewhat obvious question, because you've spoken about the importance of, say, you know, the individual substance studies and their impact on memory. Why is it specifically important to do these kinds of reviews across different substances? I think alcohol and cannabis are, of course, the most widely used substances. So it makes sense that a lot of research is already out there for these. But I mean, people use substances every day and other substances are also yeah, important to look at, um, especially as things like psychedelic therapy become more important and uh, yeah more um there is more progress made in these regards and also different substances of course there are different classes of substances and they affect our nervous system differentially and therefore they have different psychoactive effects um, ergo they also may affect our cognition differentially so we can't just uh, use a one-size-fits-all approach basically absolutely and you mentioned uh, hallucinogen uh, hallucinogenic drugs specifically would you mind speaking as to, from the review, what were some of the findings in terms of how those kinds of substances affect memory and false memory? For hallucinogenics, I was actually kind of shocked because um, there's not too much memory literature out there yet. The most comprehensive evidence out there is for dissociatives, which is a subclass of hallucinogens and um, involves drugs like ketamine or salvinorin A, which is the um, active compound and salvia, and these drugs appear to cause amnesia, so increased forgetting. Um, and some evidence also exists that they can make a person more suggestible. And then, then there's also evidence that LSD and other, other psychedelics can increase suggestibility, but there isn't really any uh, research looking directly at uh, false memories, especially in an applied legal context. It'll be interesting to see, especially as you're mentioning, I, you know, as the therapies utilizing these kinds of substances increase to see how our overall understanding of both the substances and their impacts will increase. Yes, I think it's definitely important to uh, to investigate, especially because there's good reason to suggest uh, to suspect that these substances can make somebody more suggestible. And I also wanted to, before shifting to the last substance we'll cover, I wanted to just ask one more uh, question about uh, benzodiazepines and their effect on memory as well. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah, so benzodiazepines are widely known to produce amnesia. So again, uh, increased forgetting. And in terms of false memory, different benzodiazepines have been under some circumstances found to increase decrease uh, false memory or have no effect on false memory. So the findings are quite mixed there. But as with all drugs, the picture is quite complicated because it really depends on how you test memory and which ones of the phases 
um, so the study phase or the, the testing phase is most affected. So a memory test, um, at least for long-term memory, always involves a study phase where you encode something and then a testing phase where you try to retrieve what you've learned. And most drug studies do not have the design that lets us tease those apart. So most studies um, actually have both study and testing phase during the acute drug intoxication. And this is also relevant, of course, because yeah, in the real world, maybe somebody um, sees a crime and gets questioned about it immediately, um, but it really complicates matters and it explains probably why we have so many mixed findings. Now shifting over to, to the last substance that we'll talk about uh, today, and also starting to look a little bit at another paper, which is currently under review that you did. If I'm not mistaken, the, the MDMA-related paper that you, or excuse me, the MDMA-related study that you did in the paper that's currently under review, this is actually one of, if not the first study specifically looking at the impacts of MDMA on false memory formation. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, were there any particular nuances and challenges when trying to study MDMA, especially when considering alcohol is very readily available, though there were some of the ethical challenges of the quantity that you could administer or that one can administer in a controlled environment. You know, on the cannabis, there's also a kind of controlled environment, but it, it still is a substance that is purchasable. MDMA is a slightly different substance. And if I'm not mistaken, the Netherlands overall has a high level of production and a lot of policing around this substance. So were there any additional challenges in terms of getting this set up and administered? So in terms of purchasing, there are labs that produce MDMA purely for research purposes. And um, there's a lot of research going on with MDMA in terms of yeah, treatment for PTSD in many countries at the moment. And our lab has conducted its first study with MDMA yeah, actually years ago. The first study was published in 2005 from our lab. So in that sense, um, there was not really too much, um, too much extra challenge, um, although it is expensive to buy. And differences in the setup relate mostly to the differences in duration and onset of the drug. So for example, onset of MDMA is slower because um, the way it, we administered it was through ingestion rather than cannabis, which was inhaled as vapor. So we had to have a waiting period to allow effects of the drug to unfold. And for cannabis, um, other challenges were that we had to make sure to not have any activity in the first half an hour that involved walking around because of the increased risk of falling or stumbling in the first half hour. So we had to delay the virtual reality scenario a little bit. And for NDMA, also having snacks and gum around was important because some participants were jaw clenching and grinding their jaw. And in terms of the general effects of MDMA on memory, do you mind speaking to that a little bit before we get to the specific findings? Yeah, so MDMA is a stimulant, but it also has hallucinogenic properties. So it is really unique and it has these unique effects on emotion, making a person more, um, yeah, more open, more sociable, more empathic. And most research on memory has been with long-term users. Um, and subtle deficits in memory are usually found in these studies where uh, long-term users are compared with non-users or polydrug users, for example. But in these studies, the effect sizes were usually small and people were still scoring in the normal range of memory functioning. So 
um, yeah, and some acute studies show that people recall, for example, fewer words when they're intoxicated. So verbal recall is impaired, but this impairment has been found not to persist when tested later on, for example, 24 hours later. So I would, yeah, summing up, I would say that um, true memory impairment seems to be one of the effects of MDMA, but it is um, still more subtle than other drugs. Got it. And what were the findings from your study? Were they in line with that? Yeah. So in my study, we did the exact same design um, than the one we did with the cannabis study I mentioned earlier. And uh, so we, yeah, we did all the same things. We, we did the misinformation paradigms with the two VR scenarios, as well as the, the DRM, so the wordless task. And the findings were that people under MDMA influence were not more susceptible to misinformation. So they didn't go along with more suggestive questions, uh, both um, under the acute influence and also a week later. The surprising finding was actually that um, the MDMA group, after being questioned a week later, uh, was even less susceptible to misinformation. Um, but this was not a very robust effect because we only found it in one of the conditions. But it's still interesting because the MDMA group was more conservative in their responding. And uh, there were, in terms of the DRM, so the wordless task, there were some effects. So people um, had lower lower rates of true memory, so they, they recognized uh, fewer correct stimuli. Um, and the effects of false memory were differential, um, depending on which of the memory stages was affected. So um, there was one finding where false memory was slightly increased under the acute influence. But a week later, false memory um, was decreased. And this is, I know it sounds paradoxical, but it's actually quite a standard finding in drug research. And it's similar to what we found with cannabis, um, but it's just much more subtle. Well, thank you so much for, for joining to lay out the differences in how, in general, how substances can affect memory formation and false memories and looking across these three substances. To ask a final question for the interview, uh, in case you, anything does come to mind that you'd want to share, I know you mentioned you're in the last year of your PhD now. Uh, any plans for the future or intended areas of focus and study that you'd uh, be open to commenting on? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, I would really love to zoom in on cannabis specifically because, um, yeah, as I hopefully explained in an understandable way, um, there is good reason to believe that it can really yeah, increase our risk for, for false memories and false reporting. So I would like to take it a step further and see if um, intoxicated people, but also just yeah, really frequent cannabis users um, have a higher risk to, to do a false confession, to false, falsely confess to something that they didn't actually do. And there is, um, yeah, there's this research field and these paradigms available that can allow us to study if people are more prone to give a false confession. Um, and it's probably not too fun because it, of course, involves deception. Um, but I, I think it's very relevant to see if having used cannabis either recently or um, acutely makes, makes people more vulnerable for this. And then, yeah, apart from that, I would just love to study yeah, basically every substance I can get my hands on and uh, just uh, yeah, 
help um, advance the field a bit more and provide both basic and applied knowledge for all the substances that are commonly used. Again, I'm really appreciative of the fact that, you know, you're, you spent the time to join us today and to fill our listeners in. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at DrugsHistory or over email, DrugsHistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.